Okay. I finally figured how to do this. Now they're going to make a new one, but I won't be able to figure out. Okay. Is it time yet? Yeah, it's more or less time. Look, I'd like to, uh, first of all, summarize. I'd like to talk about two things tonight. One is the, the mitzvah Sipu Yitzias Mitzrayim. The mitzvah that we have to tell the story and summarize it. That's what I spoke about the last two times. And then to talk a little bit about Hallel. Talk a little bit Hallel. You know that after Sipu Yitzias Mitzrayim, we say Hallel in the Haggadah, but Hallel... It's a very odd kind of halal. So let's summarize first. The Sipu Yitziat Mitzrayim is told in the Haggadah four different ways or five different ways. I will show you what the problem is. The four different ways which are certain um, are the following. The first Sipu Yitziat Mitzrayim starts with the words, Mitchila ovde avode zora hayu avoseinu. Right? That's the first story. The second story of Yitziat Mitzrayim starts with the words, Avodim hayinu liparo b'mitzrayim. These two stories are mentioned in the Gemara in Psachim. Davkut tet zayin Amur Aleph. There, the Mishnah says, the Mishnah says, Matchil bignut umisayem bishvach. Matchil bignut umisayem bishvach. You start off bad and you end up good. The Mishnah doesn't say exactly what that is, but in the Gemara, there's a machloket emoraim, Rav and Shmuel. Rav and Shmuel were the first generation of Emoraim in Bavel. Rav and Shmuel. So since they're the first generation of Emoraim, they lived long after the Mishnah was written. But that may not be relevant to anything. But that's a fact. Now they say, they say, Shmuel says, that what's Metchil Bignut Misayim Bishwach? According to Shmuel, mitchila ovde avode zora hayu avotenu. And Rav says, avadim hayinu leparo b'mitzrayim. So it seems from learning the Gemara that one or the other. Rav said one and Shmuel said the other and nobody said both, but we say both. Right, we say both. The third time we tell the story of Sipor of Yitziat Mitzrayim, is the continuation of the Mishnah. The Mishnah says, Matchil bignut umisayim bishvach, and then it says the word doresh. What does doresh mean? To explain. Right? To explain. Doresh me arami oved avi. And in your Haggadah, if you look at the Haggadah, you'll see that the psukim, of Arami Oved Avi, there are two or three psukim, are explained in the Haggadah. We'll look at the Haggadah in a minute. In the Haggadah, word for word. That's the third, that's the third one, right? The third, there's Mitchila Ovde Avodah Zorah, Avodim Hayinu Leparam Mitzrayim, and then Arami Oved Avi. Arami Oved Avi. The fourth, telling of the story of Yitziat Mitzrayim in the Haggadah is Rabban Gamliel. Remember Rabban Gamliel? It's the next Mishnah. Starts at the bottom of the page. You turn the page in the Gemara, that's Rabban Gamliel. What's Rabban Gamliel say? Didn't do it. What are the Shloshat Dvarim? Pesach, Matzah, and moral. So let's understand. Let's understand. All these are four ways of telling the story of Yitziat Mitzrayim. You have four ways. Right? And then you have a fifth way. Fifth way? What does the Rabbam say? 
that it's a mitzvah to tell the nisim and niflaot that took place on that day. When do we tell the nisim and the niflaot? After Rabban Gamliel. What do we tell after Rabban Gamliel? What? The makot dam svadea kinim arov We do it this way, we do it that way, we do it the other way. And we also made some, I also mentioned something about that. So that if it is true that the Nisim and the Niflaot have a separate section in the Haggadah, it turns out that we tell the story of Yitziat Mitzrayim five times on the night of, um, of Pesach. And that doesn't include Echad Mi Yodea and Shnaim Mi Yodea and Chad Gadya and all of that stuff even though some people think that's the essence of it, I doubt it. I What? It could you what? It could Ain what? Including Dayenu. Okay, Dayenu is different. I didn't say Dayenu. I'm talking about Nirtsa. Right at the end of the Seder, there's this part called Nirtsa, which means that even though you're so tired and you want to go to sleep, you're going to Sing Chad Gadya for all your work anyway. Most people think, I mean, many people think that that's the Ikar of the Haggadah. But it's not. The Ikar of the Haggadah is the Sipur Yitziat Mitzrayim, which we tell five, at least in five different ways. Now you have to understand that the first two, Mitchila of the Avodazor, which we spoke about last week, and Avadim Hayinu Lepar of Mitzrayim, Right, Avadim Ayinu Lepar Mitzrayim, and Arami Oved Avi, and Arami Oved Avi. All of them, all those three stories, Chalukim, they are in uh, in conflict about when the story of Yitziat Mitzrayim began. Okay, they all agree about when the story of Yitziat Mitzrayim ended. When they left Mitzrayim, but when did the story of Yitziat Mitzrayim begin? The first story says, and points at Terach. And we discussed that Terach is like an odd choice for the beginning. I mean, uh, we're not the children of Terach, as far as I can recall. I mean, we may have like, in, like some biological connection to Terach. But in fact, Spiritually, ideologically, religiously, we have nothing to do with Terach. But whoever the the the, the paragraph Mitchila over the Avodah you have points to Terach. The second uh, a way of telling the story Avadim Mitzrayim. The second way of telling the story says that the beginning of the story of Yitziat Mitzrayim was when. Paro enslaved the Jews. Now there's a lot to be said about all of this, but at least the outline should be clear to you. Avadim ayiru leparo mitzrayim. The third story, as we spoke last week, the third story is Arami Oved Avi. Right? Arami Oved Avi. Now while the pshat in this pasuk is unclear, this is what the Jews said when they brought the Bikurim to the Beit HaMikdash. It's called Vidui, the Chazal call it Vidui Bikurim. Vidui is a confession, but it doesn't mean a confession like I confessed that I did something wrong, but it means a statement. Vidui is a statement about what happened. What happened? The whole history of, of Eretz Israel, the Jewish people, started from Arami Oved Avi. Now, Arami Oved Avi is either Lavan, who is the, who seems to be the person designated in the Haggadah. But there are other Mephoshim who say that Arami Oved Avi was Yaakov. Yaakov himself was, was Arami Oved Avi. Okay? So we now have three starting points. Terach, uh, Lavan, and the slavery in Mitzrayim. All of them seem to imply, I mean, I mean, of course, the differences between these starting points should be considered, right? I can't tell you everything. You have to think about it. And, and, and there's, there's a difference. I wonder if you say it was Terach, or you say it was Lovot, or you say it was, uh, 
It was the slavery in Mitzrayim. But all of them agree that Yitziat Mitzrayim is about disengaging Am Yisrael from a prior relationship. And that relationship was Avodazara. That in the world in which Am Yisrael was hatched, even though Avram Avinu was remarkable in that world and rejected it, even though Yitzchak was an olat mima, which means that he was entirely connected to God and nothing else. Even though Yaakov Avinu was unaffected apparently by the fact that he went to live with Lavan all of those years, but you know he came back with wives who were affected by the fact that Lavan was their, was their father. As we, as we said uh, uh, last time. So in the creating of Am Yisrael, you know that Abram Avinu had two sons. And Yishmael was an Ovid of Odezor. That Yitzchak Avinu had two sons and that Esau was not such a nice fellow. So that this idea of creating Am Yisrael could only work if all the children of all the people would be Jewish. And that could only work if somehow they got Avodah Zorah pretty much out of their system. So whether, whether it makes sense perfectly or not, it would seem that that's what Chazal are telling us. That Yitziat Mitzrayim and this leaving, uh, leaving the, uh, the slavery in Mitzrayim was like disengaging from idolatry. Right? Mitzrayim representing total commitment to idolatry from the king on down. And B'nai Yisrael escaping from that iron vice. And the machloket between the various stories about when this all began, when this being captured by idolatry is, is indicative of the fact that, that Chazal sort of imagined that it was always there. It was very hard. It couldn't be that all the children of Yaakov and all the children of Yitzchak right, would be like Avram Avinu. That would be a desire that, uh, I mean, we couldn't do it. It couldn't be a nation of, of, uh, of philosophers. Right? We had to have it ingrained in us that we were the way we were. And even those who were a little less the way we were I mean, so you see that when they got to the building, the golden calf, where they built the Egel Azahav, so, so if you look at the Mephoshim, everybody tries, to, uh, many Mephoshim try to shy away from the notion that, the, that B'nai Yisrael were building the golden calf as an act of idolatry. And they, and they point to other weaknesses that the Jews had at that time, and the fact that they thought that Moshe Rabbeinu had disappeared. And they try to defend... Uh, on this basis, they say that if in fact it was idolatry, God surely would have destroyed them all. But there must have been some way, you know, some legalistic way to kind of defend them. Not to defend what they did, but at least to defend the fact that it was not idolatry uh, or of a pure kind. But you know that when the Jews left Mitzrayim, there was this idea that there was an Erev Rav. And Ephraim is a community of people who go along with B'nai Yisrael but are not like them at all. They were not enslaved. They were not freed from slavery. And therefore, their struggle with idolatry was non-existent. And so, we blame them for everything. We blame them, not to mean that, not to say that we are innocent, but, but to say that if not for them, it wouldn't have happened. If not for the fact that they were verbatim, to bait us into some sort of idolatrous response, there would not have been an idolatrous response. So now we're up to Rabbi Gamliel. Right? Rabbi Gamliel, Rabbi Gamliel says that there's another story in the story of Pesach. There's another story. And what is that story? Pesach, Matzah, and Mora. What's the story? That's the halachic story. That our lives changed in Yitziat Mitzrayim because suddenly there were new obligations. We had to eat the Korban Pesach. And whatever the reason is, you'll look at the Haggadah, you'll see, but we had to eat Matzot on that night and we have to eat Maror. Maror is also 
a mitzvah min ha-Torah. So when the when the uh, uh, when Rabbi Gamliel came to tell these stories, and you know, of course, we when we say Pesach, we point. But that's when the the story becomes. What do they call that in schools? Uh, what? Yeah, like audiovisual or uh, show and tell. <laughs> show and tell. I remember when I was a kid, you had to bring stuff from home, you know, like today, everybody brings their computer and just blasts it on the wall or something. But when I was a kid, you had to have show and tell. You had to look around in your house for junk to bring in and then you talk about it. That was a siman that your future was guaranteed. You, you could talk about junk, you could talk about anything. So, so uh, uh, that's what we do in the Seder. We say, Pesach, we point. Matzah, we point. We pick up the matzah. Moro, that's the way we tell the Rabban Gamliel story because the Rabban Gamliel story is connected to precision. Like you want to get the matzah right. You want to get the wrong matzah. You know, you want to get the vocha dicke matzah. You want the yontif dicke matzah, right? You have to know what it is. That's what halacha is. Halacha clarifies. Even though it's annoying from time to time. But it is clarifying, right? And you know that if you buy a box of matzahs and it has more hechsherim this year than it had last year, that you're doing the right thing. I mean, that's what it is. I mean, okay, so there are people taking you for a ride and making money on your back. Okay. But at least you know, at least you know you'll be in Gan Eden. Right? That's, so you pay for that. There you go. I mean, I, I, I assume you think that's funny. <laughs> no, but there is, a, there is a discussion amongst halachists about whether you could put those little pieces of bread uh, one of the, one of the, because, because you're really doing something terrible. Like you put down a piece of bread, you have, let's say you have little children. So little children start running around with you, they grab a piece of bread and throw it back to a place that you already thought had no chametz in it. So it's a, it's a serious problem. So this solution was suggested. Even this whole thing doesn't make any sense. Why would a person put down bread so that he could find bread to, to burn? I mean, what's the, What's the obligation to find chometz? There's no such thing. But, uh, so the middle of the road was to take pieces of bread and put them into a plastic bag. And of course you could argue about which ties are the best kind of ties. And, but now they solve the problems. They'll sell you the bags. Because if you have to put the bread into the bags, who knows what will happen. A little crumb goes here, a little crumb goes there. You know, it's a, it's a problem. But if you buy the bread already in the plastic bags, so then you're, you're safe. I mean, uh, you're safe. Look, uh, this is what the Jews have made of it, of Rabbi Gamliel. Rabbi Gamliel. Rabbi Gamliel. What? Rabbi Gamliel is a halachic story. It's, it's, it's the halachic implication of the story, which is also a story. You know, you could say, this is what we have to do because of all these things that happen. I don't know if the story is mutually exclusive, but according to Rabbi Gamliel, According to Rabbi Gamliel, the story is, uh, is about the halacha. It's about what happened. It's not about saying over again what happened in the past, but it's about what we are obliged to do in the present. That's what Rabbi Gamliel, that's what Rabbi so he says, that's the story. Now, along comes the Rambam, and the Rambam says, Nisim and Niflos. And the Haggadah also says, Nisim and Niflos, it gets to Dam Vaish Vitimrot Hashan, which for some reason there's a minute goes to the spritz a little wine, right? When you say Dam Vaish Vitimrot Hashan, that's a different posok. But it doesn't matter. But when you say Dam Tzvadeh Kinev, that you really, that's uh, audiovisual, right? Everybody, like, so the Shaila is, which finger do you use? You know? <laughs> you know, like, that's a question. There's also a question that can you put it on, you have to put it on the table or on a little dish that you, you get under the table. It doesn't matter. The thing is, we live in plastic. Right? Everything's covered with plastic. So, uh, so it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter anymore. But the interesting thing about, or the very interesting thing which we mentioned about, about this story, right? The story of 
the story of uh, the ten makot in Mitzrayim. The interesting thing is that there is this machloket, right? The, uh, that Rabbi Yossi Aglili, we're talking about Tanaim. Tanaim, anybody who learns Gemara knows that that's a serious reference point, right? Tanaim, they knew what they were talking about. The, the Moraim would fight about it, but the Tanaim knew what they were saying. So Rabbi Yossi Aglili, a Tana, says that in Mitzrayim there were ten makot. If you have a Haggadah, you could look at it. The end, before Hallel, before the part that's called Hallel, after the, after the Sipu Yitziat Mitzrayim. And then, uh, and then he proves it. He proved it somehow. And then the next uh, Tano is Rabbi Eliezer. He wants to multiply everything by four. So that means that in Mitzrayim there were 40 and in Al-Hayam there were 200. And then Rabbi Akiva says, no, there were, each Makkah had five Makot in it. If each Makkah had five Makot in it, so there were 50 in Mitzrayim, and 250 al-hayam. And this always seemed to me, this always seemed to me to be strange. Like, you know, can you say strange? Like the Torah says, ten makot. I mean, what it's like, like the Torah says the world was created in ten, seven days, so would you say it was created in 50 days? I mean, that like, uh, I mean, it sounds silly. It's one of the few things that are clear in the Torah, that there were ten makot. Here they are, here are their names, this is what happened, this is how it was. But you have Rabbi Yossi Aglili, Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Akiva, right? As though the kids would say, you know, heavy hitters, all three. And they all agree about one thing, that it's not what it looks like. It looks like ten, but it was certainly more than ten. It was certainly more than 10. And you know that this is the, the truth about looking closely at things. You know, you look, the closer you look, the more steps you see, the more divisions you can make, the more interesting it gets. And that's what Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi, Rabbi Yossi Aglili, Rabbi Loza said. He says, look at the story in the Chumash. You'll see that it's not what it says exactly but more than that, beyond that, above that, right? Above that. And therefore, uh, a part of the Sipo Yitzhiyas was tried, there seems to be a remez here, to me, a hint that that's what we should do when we tell the story. It's true that everybody is tired and probably would like to eat, but when you tell the story of Yitzhiyat Mitzrayim, you have to make it your story. You have to make it you know, either you like, quote something that you really like, or you make up something that makes sense to you, of course, within the parameters the Chazal have given us, and that's called the Saperet Sipur. And that's why, and that's why the Mishnah emphasizes that even Chachamim, even people who know the Torah very well, and know this material very well, have to do these mitzvot, they have to ask the questions, they have to give the answers. Why? Because they don't ask the same questions as other people ask. I mean, they have the same text, but it comes out different, differently. It's not, it's not just a, a repetition of what was. It's something new. That's what they, uh, these chachamim uh, say. And then I think, as I've said, that the... Uh, so it's hard to explain what that means. It's hard to explain what that means. What do you mean, Well, Yitziat Mitzrayim, as I say, is about a change. It's about sharpening your sensitivities to your relationship with HaKadosh Baruch. So the reason that we tell the story is to be in the story. We want to be part of that story because it's always something that is positive and necessary to be able uh, to sharpen that. Okay, and then I'll skip Dayenu this year and I'll go to the end of the Haggadah. <laughs> the end of the Haggadah, 
after Bechol Dorva Dor, I mean, I'm looking at a Haggadah that uh, I can't always understand why some of the words are bold-faced and others are not. It always annoys me. <coughs> so then we have Therefore, because of all these stories that we've told and all the things that have happened to us, we and so you know that we say Hallel on the night of Pesach. In fact, in the Minig Yerushalayim, generally most, most Kehilot, they, you say Hallel twice. You say Hallel regular, more, uh, most people, I mean, again, most people say Hallel regularly after Marif in Shul. Hallel regularly means they start with a brocha, right, and they end with a brocha. And the brochas are what makes Hallel. And those chapters of Tehillim are framed by brachot. And those brachot create the entity called Hallel. Right? With the brachot, it's Hallel. And without the brachot, it's just a number of prakim in Tehillim. Right? And this is the argument that takes place on Yom Hatzma'ut. Every year in all kinds of places. Are you saying a, lot of, a couple of prakim of Tehillim, which is all right. You know, you could do that any time. Or are you saying te, uh, Hallel? In order to say Hallel, you have to say the bracha lefaneha and the bracha achareha. Now this, of course, is there's a, like an aside here that has to do with Rosh Chodesh that we're not going to go into, but I just mention it because if somebody says to you, what about Rosh Chodesh? We're not talking about Rosh Chodesh. So again, we say Hallel. In Shul, we say Hallel with two brachot. A bracha before Hallel and a bracha after Hallel, which means that we are saying Hallel without a doubt. Now we come to the Haggadah, and the Haggadah says, "Say Hallel." That's what the Haggadah says. We just read it. And we do. We go on and we say Hallel. It's not just a guess that I have. We continue and say Hallel. But there's a difference, right? There's a difference. The, uh, that is that the Hallel we say on the night of Pesach when we read the Haggadah is divided into two parts. There's the part we say before we eat and the part that we say after we eat. And that seems to us to be uh, uh, very strange. If there's a Hallel that we say on every Yontif, and if there's a Hallel... <coughs> that we even say in the night of Pesach. Why don't we say that hallel? Why are we saying something else? What is this all about? Furthermore, I have to tell you that this half of the hallel that we say before we eat ends with a bracha. Right? Ends with a bracha. And that bracha is Baruch Atah Hashem Ga'al Yisrael. You see that bracha? If the B'tzayt Yisrael Mitzrayim and then there's a long bracha, Asher Ga'alano V'Ga'alano and then Bracha to Hashem Ga'al Yisrael. How many times have you read the Haggadah in your lifetime? And you don't remember? Terrible. There's a, there's a paragraph at the end of the ha- half of the Hallel, not Chatzi Hallel, but the first half of the whole Hallel, which, which talks about Ga'al Yisrael. Then, but no bracha before, just a bracha afterwards. Ga'al Yisrael, the same bracha that we have in Marev and in Chakras before Shemot Esrei. After we eat, after we eat, uh, after we eat, make all these brachas and the matzah and the moron, 
and then we bench, we bench. Then you know, shvoch hamoschal, and then then you have more halal. You see more halal after we eat. Lolono Hashem lolono, no, lolono halal. So more halal and more halal, and then at the end of the more halal, which goes all the way to the end of halal. Halel Hagadol, the 26 lines of Halel Hagadol are about the 26 generations until Matan Torah. And that was a time when Am Yisrael, the whole world, lived on Chesed. So that the Hodul Hashem Kitov is not about something that happened, like, you know, Hanukkah or, uh, or Pesach, or, not about something that happened. But it's about the salvation of the world. That's Hodul Hashem Kitov. We say, and that's called, Chazal called that Halel Hagadol. Not Gadol because it has more words or more psukim, but Gadol because the issue is greater. Right? And then we say all kinds of stuff that reminds us of davening on Shabbos morning, right? We say this, we say that, we say the other thing. I don't want to go into all of that. And then we get up to Yishtabach. You see Yishtabach? And then at the end of Yishtabach, so I would say, I would say, what I would like to say is that Hallel, according to the Haggadah, is not an obligation, but Hallel is an aspiration. You want to say Hallel, you don't want to fulfill an obligation. When did we fulfill the obligation to say Hallel? In Shul. Then we fulfilled the obligation. But in the Haggadah, we're not fulfilling the obligation to say Hallel. We're doing something else. We're inspired to say Hallel. It's as though we're not commanded, we're not directed, but there's no other choice. You read the words in the Haggadah. Shirach Hadashah. Melech Mulal Batish Bachot, Ga'al Yisrael. Oh, these are all kinds of feelings that we have in the, in the saying of, of Hallel. And so who said this? Who's the first one who said this? Rav Haigon. Rav Haigon, he lived in Babylonia. I think in Mota Mechasia, last night I went to a wedding that was in Mechasia, near Beit Shemesh. There's such a place. And I thought that I thought that it was in is in Babylonia, but maybe these guys in Babylonia cheated, and they were in uh, they were really in Eretz Israel. So Rav Haigon said, Rav Haigon said, there's a difference between reading Hallel, saying Hallel, and the Hallel of Shira. It was the Hallel of Shira is a direct result of experience. It's like Shirat Hayam. B'nai Yisrael were able to say Shirat Hayam because they experienced whatever they experienced at Yam Suf. Whether they saw the vision of God, whether they knew they were saved, they understood what was happening, something happened to them and they were able to follow the lead of Moshe Rabbeinu and say Shirat Hayam. We are only able to say the words. And we say them, not when we're inspired to say them, but we say them when the, there's an obligation to say them. 
We are people who follow the rules. But on the night of the Haggadah, and this is on the night of the Seder, and this is what Rav Haigon said, that the Shira, that the Shira that we want to sing is a Shira that is self-motivated, that is generated by us. We ourselves, because we've told the story, and because we've been able to find ourselves in that story, we want to say Shira. It doesn't matter if it's obligatory or not. And to make sure that we don't think that it's a regular obligatory halal, this Rav Haigon also says, so they split into half. Half before we eat and half after we eat. So if you say half before you eat and then half after you eat, you cannot make the mistake of thinking that what you're doing is saying regular halal. You're not. Because if it was regular halal, you'd have a bracha before, you'd have some kind of a bracha like every other mitzvah. But that's not what it is. Okay, we say halal anyway, right? Because we say whatever's in the Haggadah. But in fact, it seems that this idea that you have to say, that you have to say uh, halal and that the halal should be a shira chadasha, a new song that has never been sung before because it comes from you, it's your song, that is the Hallel of the night of Pesach. Not the Hallel of Shul, but the Hallel of the Haggadah. The Hallel of the Haggadah, which is followed by Nirzah. You know what Nirzah is? Nirzah is a collection of ditties. You know that when you're in a good mood, you like you could start singing Hallel. But then, you know, you say, what else does Mordechai ben David sing or something or the other guy, a freed? What else does he sing? Let's get another one and another one. Or if you were in my house, you would sing Kalbach. But, smach the dice, singing, singing the song, the Shira Chadosha, the Hallel, breeds you want to sing something else? Let's sing something else. How exactly? Echod miyodeya got in. And Chadadya got in. I don't know. I'm sure there are people who are diligently trying to crack that mystery. But the idea that you want to sing another song and another song and another song, that's, not, you know, that's regular. That's what happens when you sing. When you sing, you don't want to stop. So if you're a chosid, you can sing the same tune over again ad infinitum. If you have a little less patience, you look for other kinds of tunes to, to add in. So on this matter, on the singing of Hallel, I would like to, before I do, I would like to mention the fact that these three sheirim on, uh, on the Haggadah were sponsored in memory of Rabbi J. Gershon Newman Zal. Rav Kalman Gershon HaKohen Zal Ben Ben Yamin HaKohen Vesora. Um, these uh, very close friends of mine, of Miriam's, of Atid, of the Web Yeshiva, and we wish that the Shiurim, we hope, will uh, be sufficient to, that, that the, the Nifta will have an Aliyah. So let's learn a little bit of the of Rav Nachman. You know, Lizzie Rav Nachman. You know, he had such a way of looking at things. It was so so different, so creative. He says, "Daki Yaakov Avinu." You see in the sheet, "Daki Yaakov Avinu." Kshisholach is banav aseret hashvatim liyosef. Famine in Eretz Canaan. Yaakov Avinu says, "Look, nothing to do." Go to go to Mitzrayim. He didn't know it was Yosef. Imagine that. Yaakov Avinu sent the song of Eretz Yisrael with his sons to Yaakov to to Yosef. You don't understand what Rav Nachman is talking about, but you have to smile, right? It's like, gee. Who ever thought of that idea? He sent them with the nigun of Eretz Yisrael. 
And he says, so then this is in the Pesach. It's in the Pesach. You turn the back of the sheet, the whole Pesach is there. Since you have to go to Mitzrayim, he tells his son, Zotasu, Kumi Zimrata Aretz. You know, bring Zimrata Aretz. Now, what, what did they tell you Cheder Zimrata Aretz was? Like things that grow in the land. Oh, he says, Zimrata Aretz. Zimrata Aretz is take with you the Nigunim of Eretz Yisrael. And if you go back to Rav Nachman, he says, Bechina Zemer Vinigun Sheshalach al Yadam Yosef. He said that with music. Everybody took an instrument. Everybody had music that they brought with them. Kamosh appears Rashi and he says, Rodak, I didn't make this up. This is a Rashi. Right there in the Pulsar. What does Rashi say? Mizirat Lishon Zemer. That's what Rashi says. He brought songs. Kida. Then he goes on, he says, What's this all about? Kikol A ro'eh is a shepherd. But you know who a shepherd is? A shepherd is Moshe Rabbeinu. A shepherd is Rav Nachman Abratzlov. A shepherd is a known Jewish leader. Not a leader of Jews, but a Jewish leader. And he says, Daki kol ro'eh nigun miyuchad. Every shepherd, every leader has a song that he sings. And you have to remember that story. You know, the story is told about Rav Levi Yisrael that a night of Yom Kippur, he wouldn't let anybody daven, he wouldn't let them start Kol Nidre. He waited and waited until some child who was there was a shepherd blew a whistle, or whistled, I guess. It was Yom Kippur. And then Rav Levi Yitzchuk says, now we can start. So, of course, everybody wonders, what was he waiting for? I mean, okay, the, the kid, maybe the kid was a great whistler. And maybe he was a great neshama. But what exactly was he waiting for? So here Rav Nachman says, Rav Nachman the Bratzlev, he says, Kol ro every shepherd, it's the music that produces harmony between the created world that God made and that, that created world working. Like there are grasses and there are flowers and there are fruits and they all provide sustenance. And that's what the Ro'ed does. The red doesn't watch his sheep. The red plays, you know, like in those movies, you have that flute, that kind of flute that, that, the, that the shepherds had on the, on the mountaintops in Austria and Germany. And they, what were they playing? They were like getting everything relaxed. You know, everything was as it should be. That was music. And then he says, uh, every animal has some grass that he wants to eat and something that serves his purposes and so the animal has to eat it and therefore the shepherd or the herder plays the music to make sure that the grasses are going to be available so that the music becomes the ultimate language of the opposite of confrontation, right? There's a peace in the world. There's something that is as it should be, and that's the language that music is able to, to, to speak to. Uh, and so the melody changes because sometimes he has the shepherd his sheep here and sometimes he shepherds them there. He call Esav, Esav, Yeshlo, Shira. Shira. So Shira is a language. Shira is a language. Whoever has that language, whoever has that language finds his way in the world just as the shepherd finds his way in the world. So according to Rabbi Nachman of Bratzlev, Shira Hadashah it's not just a subsequent obligation. 
It's not like you say, oh God, save me from Mitzrayim. So I'll praise God as though God is waiting for my praise. Okay, that itself is a, is a question in the Gemara. But what Rav Nachman says is that the ability to sing is the ability to find the world working properly. It's the most non-idolatrous act that there is. This idea that the world is working as the Creator wanted it to work. And he says, Those of you who know the, the, the Prokim of Shira, some people say it every day. Today it was... Uh, it's nice, Pirkei Shira, you know, all the, the Shira of all the animals and the birds and... Uh, hmm? For a lot of money you can buy a uh, very fancy edition of Pirkei Shira and then you'll remember it. Every time you look at it you'll say, well, how could I spend that much money? Adat Yaval Hu Yoshev Yuval. It was Yaval. He was the Ohel and Mikne, the 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 flocks. He says, but Shemachiv Yuval. He had a brother Yaval. Had a brother Yuval, who Ayavi called Toface Kinova Ugav. He was the great musician. He started music. He was the first one who had a kinor, a violin, and ugav. Ugav today is a, uh, is an organ. I mean, I guess there's something with wind. It's something that works on wind. Ki tekev enough. He says, that's how it had to be. As soon as the world, as soon as there came into the world a, a shepherd, there had to be music in the world as well. So Yaval was the shepherd and Yuval was the, was the musician. I'm sorry. Remember, David Amelech knew how to play music. And he's called forever Neimzi Mirot Yisrael, which means the singing of the Tehillim. Like the Tehillim was sung in the Beit HaMikdash. So he says, uh, From the edges of the world we heard these Mirot. So you see, you see that if you look, uh, okay, that posuk is the posuk. Just uh, if you turn the page and you look at Shmuel Aleph Perk Zion. This is Shaul who feels who was depressed, distressed and depressed. He knew how to play the musical instrument. And Rashi says, So you see that according to Rashi, music was dangerous. It had to be used properly. It had to be used properly to affect uh, the people uh, again so that the discussion I mean I just want to tell you this that the discussion Rabbi Nachman is what Shira like where Shira derives from and what its place is in the world and therefore according to the Haggadah we all have the capacity to Shira and Shira means 
Shira means that I, I can't express myself in a better way. I can't do it in a more effective way. Shira, which is not always the same as, as just singing some tune together, but Shira, Shira Chadasha, a new invention, some new kinds of Shira, that is the great praise to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And that's what Rav Nachman of Bratzel is trying to, is trying to explain. What he's trying to explain is that Shira is not a reflective act. It's not about, well, I'm, I'm in good shape, so I'll sing a song. There is such a thing, but that's not what Rav Nachman of Bratzlav is talking about. He says, when I feel good about myself, when I feel good about my nation, when I feel good about what's happened, feeling good, feeling good means that, that the point of the creation is apparent to me. It makes sense to me. So that the grasses should grow and the animals should feed, which means that that the world should sustain me and I should be able to do what I have to do in that world. And the thing that is the response to, but also the generator of that world is called Shira. And so when the Haggadah tells us Shira Chadasha, that's what the, that's what the Haggadah means. Not last year's song but the song of the people who left Mitzrayim and gained this understanding and intelligence in what the Haggadah is trying to, to, to direct us to. Okay. Have a uh, wonderful Pesach. We'll, t- we'll get together again in Yetz Hashem after Pesach, the Thursday night after Pesach. All the best.